0: For more than 50 years, we've been told that the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 was the closest we've ever come to nuclear war and that the American president, Jack Kennedy, brilliantly outfoxed the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev and defused the danger.
1: But now we know that something very different was going on. The missiles the Soviets had placed on Cuba posed no significant threat to the United States. Why on earth then did Kennedy allow the crisis to slide to the brink of nuclear war?
0: last conversation at the History Cafe we discovered that the missiles Nikita Khrushchev smuggled across to Cuba in 1962 posed no significant threat to the United States Khrushchev was using them as a bargaining counter in a bid for concessions over nuclear disarmament and the control of Berlin but the Americans were so far ahead in the nuclear arms race that Kennedy could legitimately have ignored him or negotiated the missiles away with a minimum of concessions The big question is, why did Kennedy choose instead to take the world to the edge of nuclear war?
1: Well, to begin unravelling this mystery, we first checked our sources, and we discovered that the story most of us were taught is a piece of Kennedy propaganda, deliberately constructed in the days after the crisis. And then we began looking around the room. We got to know the Soviet Premier, Nikita Khrushchev, a bit better. And we discovered that he'd been creating crises like this since 1956, in the hope of wringing concessions from America and the West mainly over a nuclear test ban but also over the Western military occupation of West Berlin. We also discovered that the Americans had excellent proof that the Soviets have very few nuclear missiles and that Khrushchev's threats could be safely faced down or even ignored altogether. But the original reason Khrushchev put missiles on Cuba wasn't in fact to do with any of this. It had to do with Fidel Castro. So now we need to pull up another chair and find out more about the revolutionary Cuban leader.
0: On the 1st of January 1959, Cuba had been seized by Los Barbudos, the men with beards. They'd led a revolt against the regime of Fulgencio Batista, a regime so corrupt that even the Americans had disowned it. By the end, Batista had only been propped up by the mafia. Los Barbudos were led by four young bearded revolutionaries Fidel Castro, Raul, his brother. Camilo Cienfuegos and an Argentine doctor called Ernesto Che Guevara. As soon as they took power, the bearded men declared Fidel Castro as their president. Much later, when he was 82, Castro explained about the beards in an interview with the magazine The East African. This is what he said. The story of our beards is very simple. It arose out of the difficult conditions we were living and fighting in as guerrillas. When we found ourselves in the middle of the wilderness, up in the Sierra, everybody just let their beards and hair grow, and that turned into a kind of badge of identity. And it had its positive side. In order for a spy to infiltrate us, he had to start preparing months ahead. He'd have to have a six-month's growth of beard, you see. Later, with the triumph of the revolution, we kept our beards to preserve the symbolism
1: well, in American mythology then and still today, Fidel Castro and his rebels were communists. But the reality is a lot more complicated than that. Cuba was a Catholic country, and the Catholic Church deeply distrusted communism. And relations between the Barbudos and the Soviet Union were almost always very difficult. The Cubans never trusted Moscow. If the Barbudos aligned themselves with the Soviets, it wasn't therefore because they were communists, it was because they were, well, pushed into it by the Americans. The very first country Castro visited just four months into his presidency was the United States of America. The visit was partly organised by an American public relations firm and Castro was accompanied by a CIA officer. Castro was a big hit. A huge crowd turned out in the rain to meet him at Washington's national airport. Over the next few days, he was photographed eating hot dogs and ice creams in New York's Bronx Zoo. The students at Princeton carried him on their shoulders. At Harvard, he stayed with, well, guess who... Mac Bundy, the man who would three years later turn up in Kennedy's bedroom with the morning papers and those fateful photographs of Soviet missile bases on Cuba. Back in 1959, the press were delighted to discover that Castro's son had been studying at a New York school.
0: Now all this was very unlikely if Castro had been a communist. In fact, during his visit, Castro kept on repeating to anyone who was listening, we are not communists. He was, so far as anyone could discover at the time, a young Catholic whose revolution had been directed mainly against Batista's mafia backers, who'd filled Havana and Cuba's beach resorts with brothels and casinos and barely legal businesses. They also ran many of the hotels, one of the most popular of them owned by Frank Sinatra, whose links to the mafia were an open secret.
1: While well, it's true that Castro and his Barbudos had initially imposed themselves on Cuba with some force... Notoriously, they immediately executed 521 of their enemies, with little more than the appearance of a trial. They also seized the property of rich Americans who had, over the preceding century, bought up much of their island, deforesting it and keeping the Cubans in a state of widespread poverty. But the Barbudos negotiated a package of $2 billion in compensation to the former American owners. Then they lowered rents and prices to make life better for the millions of ordinary Cubans. No wonder that Barbudos were quickly popular in Cuba, and with the liberal students at Harvard. But no wonder some Americans jumped to the hasty conclusion that they were communists.
0: Castro's foreign policy priority was in reality to negotiate a trade deal. Not with Moscow, but with the American government. That's why he was in the States on his barnstorming visit. But then events took a bizarre twist. The president in 1959 was Ike Eisenhower. Castro was in the States for 11 days, but Eisenhower's office turned down his repeated request for a meeting. The president, they said, was too busy. In actual fact, Eisenhower was busy playing golf. Instead, his vice president, Richard Nixon, met Castro for a few minutes. He listened sourly to Castro's talk about negotiating a deal to help Cuba's unemployed and poor He has, wrote Nixon, those indefinable qualities which make him a leader of men. Whatever we may think of him, he's going to be a great factor in the development of Cuba and very possibly in Latin American affairs generally. We have no choice but at least to try to orient him in the right direction. He agreed that Castro was not a communist, but Castro was a naive young man who might all too easily be influenced by his communist friends.
1: So who was this vice-president who made this rather over-hasty judgment?
0: Well, Nixon had been legal
1: counsel to Joe McCarthy, the notorious and by now completely disgraced senator for Wisconsin. McCarthy's infamous claims that there were communist cells everywhere, in Hollywood, the Pentagon and the US Army, had eventually earned him a unique censure from the Senate and national ridicule. His hysterical claims of communist influence in the States are now completely discredited. Nixon himself had earned a reputation for duplicity. By the time he met Fidel in 1959, the press had for years been calling him Tricky Dicky. He was later to become possibly the most corrupt president in US history, at least until that time. He was brought down and disgraced by the Watergate affair. But after Nixon's very hurried 1959 verdict, the Americans offered Castro nothing during his stay in the States. It was a bad miscalculation. The Cuban economy was in a wretched state, desperate for aid. So Castro had little choice but to turn instead to the Soviets. Fidel Castro was the new young president of Cuba in 1959. He'd straightaway appealed to the Americans for a trade deal, but had been swatted off with nothing. So, of course, Castro turned to the Soviets. He had no other choice, but it was anything but an easy relationship.
0: In the course of 1959, American intelligence began to notice low-grade military equipment from Poland and other Soviet bloc countries turning up on Cuba. We now know that it had been requested not by Castro, but by his brother Raul and by Che Guevara, who, unlike Fidel, had been working with the communists since before the revolution. The Cubans had also paid market prices for the military gear. But the American military jumped to the conclusion that the Barbudos had gone over to the Soviet enemy. They would have to get rid of Castro. By December 1959, the CIA was making secret plans to assassinate him. President Eisenhower always cautious put the plan on hold. He would wait and see.
1: But the reality was that the Soviets trusted Fidel no more than the Americans did. Moscow had good reason to be doubtful about Castro and his Barbudos commitment to the communist cause. Castro played baseball, sent his son to school in New York, got on well with American journalists, went fishing with Ernest Hemingway, who lived just outside Havana. Castro told Soviet representatives on Cuba bluntly that he didn't want to be too closely associated with them. He wanted economic aid, and for that he needed to do deals with everyone, Americans as well as Soviets. There wasn't even a Soviet embassy on the island. Besides, Fidel and his Barbudos were much more interested in stirring up independence revolutions across South America than turning Cuba into a communist state. Moscow disliked all of this. Even after, in early 1961, Castro reluctantly started calling Cuba a socialist state, Moscow pointedly refused even to recognise it.
0: Meanwhile, Che Guevara was actively trying to win the backing of the Chinese communist dictator Chairman Mao. And what we have to understand about Mao is that he was the last person Moscow wanted to be involved in Cuba, since Mao was aggressively bidding to rival the Kremlin's leadership of world communism. Since the mid-1950s, Khrushchev therefore had been under pressure to help the new regimes that were appearing all over the developing world, as independent movements put an end to European colonial regimes. But Soviet interventions in Egypt, in the Congo, in Laos and elsewhere were not going well. And the Chinese, under their aggressive leader Chairman Mao, were stirring up anti-Soviet criticism.
1: So although Khrushchev didn't trust Castro in Cuba... Neither could he let him slip away from Soviet influence. He was charismatic, popular, he'd be a great catch. He was also a problem. So although the Soviets allowed some small shipments of arms to the island, they were so suspicious of Castro that it took them a whole year even to open diplomatic relations, or to make any high-level contact at all. In February 1960, Khrushchev's deputy, the Spanish-speaking Anastas-Mikoyan, was in Mexico. On his way home, he dropped in on the new Cuban president. Castro came to meet him at Havana Airport with a guitar band and straw hats and took him on a helicopter tour of the island. They went camping, fishing. When their tents failed to turn up, they roughed it in an empty hotel and sat up talking all night. But all this was just a prelude to the serious business. Castro desperately needed help for his island's economy. Mikoyan offered him $100 million. He would also buy 5 million tonnes of sugar over three years, but only at a knockdown price.
0: It was nowhere near enough. No sooner was Mikoyan on the plane back to Moscow than Castro again approached the Americans. They were neighbours after all and had always been Cuba's most important trading partner. And as he'd publicly said, he'd do business with anyone. But this time, even diplomats at the American embassy in Havana refused to meet him. Many years later, CIA officers told Mikoyan's son, Sergo, that it was his father's whirlwind tour of the island that had finally convinced them that Castro and his Barbudos could not be befriended. They would have to be removed. A month later, Eisenhower secretly agreed to the CIA plans to get rid of Castro. <laughs>
1: President Eisenhower had ignored every one of Castro's approaches for American backing and decided that he had to be got rid of. In March 1960, he gave the CIA a budget of $30 million to do it. Almost immediately, saboteurs blew up a Belgian ship, La Cubra, in Havana Harbour. Over a hundred died. There's never been any proof, but Fidel drew the obvious conclusion that the CIA was behind the attack. The Americans decided that an invasion was too risky. So instead they halted all commerce with the island except for food and medicine. They would stifle Castro's economy. They leaned on other Latin American countries to isolate the Cubans and suspend them from the Organization of American States. They would also try to encourage opposition to Castro on the island. They began training Cuban exiles as an invasion force. They began investigating ludicrous schemes to make Castro's beard fall out. After all, how could a beardless man expect to lead the Barbudos? They began negotiating with a mafia which was anxious to regain its economic grip on the island. Eventually, the CIA concluded they would just have to assassinate Castro.
0: Unsurprisingly, Castro's demands for help from the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev grew more urgent. But Castro still didn't want to be seen siding openly with the Soviets. It all presented Nikita Khrushchev with a dilemma. He didn't trust Castro, but nor did he want to lose him, particularly if that was through an American hit operation or an invasion of the island nor did he want any more criticism from Chairman Mao that he'd been neglecting young revolutionary regimes in the developing world. So he promised Castro more weapons, and this time suggested he wouldn't need to pay for them. He even set up a personal fund for Castro to use as he wanted. On the 9th of July 1960, the Soviets promised to launch a nuclear strike from the Soviet Union if the Americans ever invaded was an empty promise since, as we've seen, US retaliation would have wiped the Soviet Union off the map. But now the Soviets had reluctantly committed themselves to protecting the young Cuban regime from attack by the Americans.
1: All this means that we can dimly begin to understand the real significance of the missiles Khrushchev would put on the island two years later. They didn't alter the strategic nuclear balance. They fitted into Khrushchev's policy of creating international crises as a way of trying to gain concessions, particularly the nuclear disarmament in Berlin. But also, they had to do with protecting Cuba from American attack and trying to keep Castro on side, away from the Americans and away from Chairman Mao.
0: Khrushchev always maintained that this second reason was the more important of the two. We'll make up our own minds later when we look at tantalising documents from the top-secret Soviet Presidium. But already we can see that what we've discovered so far changes completely what we should expect Kennedy to do when he discovers the Soviet missiles on Cuba. There were plenty of ways of negotiating with Khrushchev. There were plenty of ways of bringing Cuba back into the American fold. Doing nothing would have been an equally justifiable option. It was what America's allies wanted. Getting to the brink of world destruction was not, shall we say, the obvious thing to do.
1: One of the things historians have to work out is what the right questions are to ask. And the right question to ask about the Cuban Missile Crisis is not the old how did Kennedy so successfully face down the strategic threat of Soviet missiles on Cuba. The right question turns out to be why on earth did Kennedy escalate the crisis to the brink of nuclear war when he didn't need to? To answer that question, we'll need to know much more about what was going on in the presidency of John F. Kennedy.
0: So why did Kennedy push the Cuban Missile Crisis to the brink of war instead of negotiating or even ignoring Khrushchev's missiles altogether? President Eisenhower had always reacted to Khrushchev's threats with a calm cynicism. He understood that Khrushchev was all bluster and no backup. He couldn't deliver on his threats. So why was Kennedy different? Why did he turn Khrushchev's new provocation into a crisis?
1: Well, for that, we have to go back to 1960. When the United Nations was meeting in New York in September 1960, Castro was among the very few who supported Khrushchev in the United Nations Assembly. The Cuban leader had opted for a cheap Harlem Hotel as a gesture of solidarity with hard-pressed Afro-Americans. In a calculated stunt, the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev travelled downtown to visit him. In front of America's press, the two men embraced. Uh, it wasn't straightforward. Khrushchev was five foot three and Castro six foot four. It didn't make Castro a communist. But in a flash, Khrushchev had succeeded in turning Castro's dire need for financial assistance into photographic proof that they were comrades in arms.
0: What made this Soviet-Cuban moment a turning point was not just that it took place at the time the United Nations was meeting. It was that it took place in the middle of the American presidential election race. Just two months before, the Democrat convention had chosen John F. Kennedy as its presidential candidate. The election was now less than two months away. Khrushchev's Harlem visit guaranteed that Cuba would be a major theme in Kennedy's bitterly fought contest with Vice President Richard Tricky Dicky Nixon.
1: Jack Kennedy always thought that foreign policy was his strongest suit. His father, Joe Kennedy, the millionaire son of a wealthy Boston family, had been the American ambassador in London when the Second World War had broken out. Jack himself had covered the post-war Potsdam Conference as a journalist and written an undergraduate thesis on Britain's failure to rearm the 1930s. His father who made a killing from stock speculation at the time of the Wall Street crash and from bootleg whiskey at the time of Prohibition, had got it published. It had become a bestseller. During the 1960 election campaign, Jack Kennedy had been attacking the outgoing Eisenhower administration for its foreign policy failures. For years, Kennedy had been making speeches on the conviction, which we have seen was almost universal outside Eisenhower's Oval Office, that there was a wide and dangerous missile gap between the states and the USSR. The Americans, Kennedy declared, were dangerously far behind in nuclear weapons. The time is fast approaching, proclaimed Kennedy, in which our own offensive and defensive missile capabilities will lag so far behind those of the Soviets as to place us in a position of great peril. It was a perfect plank for his presidential campaign.
0: Kennedy also claimed that the Soviets were being more successful than the Americans at winning over non-aligned nations. So when, in the middle of the presidential election, Khrushchev enveloped Castro in his bear hug, or given their respective heights, was it the other way around, it gifted Kennedy the perfect electioneering issue. Kennedy circulated his campaign team. What kind of a mess had Eisenhower and Nixon got their country into if the little Soviet leader could be publicly courting the giant Cuban in a New York hotel? They should start loudly asking where it would all end. They should seriously ratchet up the rhetoric. Did the Soviets, asked Kennedy, actually intend to use Cuba as a missile base? Kennedy
1: obviously thought the issue played well for him. The first of the presidential election TV debates was just days away when Fidel Castro got up to speak at the UN. In a speech that lasted a record-breaking four and a half hours, Castro called presidential candidate Kennedy an illiterate and ignorant millionaire. Well, now there was no going back. With just two weeks to go before polling day, Kennedy loudly accused Eisenhower and Nixon of blunder, inaction, retreat and failure because they'd done nothing about the possibility of a communist threat from Cuba. We must, declared Kennedy, attempt to strengthen the democratic anti-Castro forces in exile and in Cuba itself, who offer eventual hope of overthrowing Castro. By the time Kennedy defeated Nixon by less than a whisker in November 1960, he'd nailed his colours once and for all to the anti-Castro cause. All of which helps to explain why, when Kennedy arrived in the Oval Office and discovered the CIA already had advanced plans to topple Castro, he had little choice but to back them. Of course, he also discovered fresh off the intelligence photo machines evidence that the missile gap he'd been making such a noise about had always been a myth. Far from being way ahead, the Soviets were way behind the Americans in nuclear missiles. But Kennedy couldn't change his loud anti-communist nuclear rhetoric now, partly because it had helped get him elected. And partly because he couldn't reveal the secret American intelligence. So, whatever Oliver Stone claims in his film JFK, after all his campaigning bluster, Kennedy had no option from the start of his presidency but to look tough on the Cuban leader and on Khrushchev.
0: Kennedy inherited a well-funded CIA mission to topple Castro. The latest CIA plan was to launch an invasion by Cuban exiles still loyal to the corrupt old regime. Now, the Kennedys have always claimed that Jack, just days into office, was talked into an ill-worked-out strategy that was doomed to failure. But documents declassified in 1996 tell a very different story. The original CIA plan had been to land the exile force close to the Cuban town of Trinidad, which had been a centre of anti-Castro sentiment and which lay between a perfect landing beach and wooded mountains ideal for a guerrilla operation. Trinidad is now incidentally a UNESCO-protected heritage site. Go there if you can. Once in office, however, Kennedy was getting cold feet about any overt military anti-communist action. So he shifted the landing to somewhere more isolated, Playa Hiron, at the mouth of the desolate Bay of Pigs, he also banned any U.S. Air Force cover.
1: Now, Playa Haran is still a windswept and dreary beach backed by a faded hotel. On the evening of the 17th of April 1961, as the invasion landing craft drifted in, the hotel was still being built. In fact, that Monday evening, the workmen were celebrating a fiesta and had turned on all their arc lights. So when the CIA-backed rebels waded ashore on what was supposed to be a secret and silent nighttime assault, they found themselves gatecrashing a party. Within hours, Castro's planes were overhead, and the 1,400 rebels found themselves cut off with no supplies. Playa Geron was a disastrous landing place, the only road inland funneled the invading force along a narrow corridor between mangrove swamps. They were a sitting target for Castro's army. The road is still marked with the lonely graves of the Cuban soldiers who fell. 191 of the invaders died, and 1,202 were
0: captured. After the Bay of Pigs disaster, the Kennedy policy of regime change in Cuba was public, and rather embarrassing, knowledge. It meant that success was imperative. So the CIA launched an extended and determined terrorist operation. It has become something of a joke. There are tired old tales about the CIA trying to blow Castro up with exploding cigars, or to inject wallpaper at a television studio with LSD so that he would seem to go crazy on air.
1: But the reality is a lot more shocking. In November 1961, Kennedy put his brother Bobby in charge of the CIA Cuba Special Group. The operation was named Mongoose, which was the CIA codename for Thailand, just to confuse any spies who might be listening in. They came up with the idea of trying to stir up revolution in Cuba so that the Americans could step in to save the people. It was the same plan the Americans always use when they attempt regime change in South America.
0: The president allocated $50 million, but Bobby told his team no money, effort or manpower is to be spared. He had 400 agents based in Miami and a private flotilla of small boats. The mafia, obviously keen to regain its casinos and brothels closed by Castro and his revolutionaries, was already involved. Time was pressing because Jack wanted it done by October 1962 because that was when Americans would go to the polls in midterm elections. The result could make or break his presidency.
1: Photographic evidence confirms that CIA-backed terrorists set off bombs on the island of Cuba in crowded places, stealing into 65 townships, torturing the inhabitants and torching their buildings and crops. In and at least one case, they destroyed an entire village, including its school. One estimate reported by American scholars Blight and Brenner is that there were 7,500 terrorist attacks on Cuba in 1962 alone, perpetrated by the CIA or their local contacts.
0: The Americans also tried to cut Cuba off. Openly breaking international law, they banned any ship that had been to Cuba from docking in America for six months. Only medicine now could be sold to Cubans, no longer any food. And nothing at all could be bought from them. There's a rumour that Kennedy sent his press secretary out to buy 1,200 of the best Cuban cigars before it was too late.
1: Well, of course, none of this toppled Castro. All it achieved was to push him, against his better judgement, further and further into the arms of the Soviets, the only people willing to give him the weapons to resist American terrorism and the very real prospect of invasion. Even the American Defence Secretary, Robert McNamara, agreed that faced with so much American aggression, he too would have expected an invasion at any time had he been Cuban.
0: So now we're beginning to sense more clearly why the appearance of Soviet missiles on Cuba in October 1962 was such a problem for Kennedy. It wasn't because they were a strategic threat; They weren't. It's not because another of Khrushchev's stunts would be impossible to deal with. It wouldn't. It was because years of lurid anti-Castro rhetoric and the humiliating flop at Playa Heron, Bay of Pigs, had backed Kennedy into a foreign policy corner. By whatever means, Castro and his Soviet supporters had to be got out of Cuba... But events on Cuba had now overtaken Kennedy. Because it wasn't
1: just nuclear missiles the Soviets had shipped to Cuba. There was a whole lot besides. And it mattered much more because at the same time, Kennedy was facing a domestic political crisis of his own. As we shall see next time at the History Cafe. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might
0: have.